Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the January 27, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my first guest will be Professor A.J. Shaka to examine our energy options in his inestimably critical and expansive way. Some of his students think of it as going on tangents. Then UCI sociologist Professor Wang Feng, who's back from his recent Brookings Institution Fellowship in China, will answer all of my wide-eyed questions about the one-child policy there in China, among other dynamic social institutions. And remember all, if you miss this on today's show or any other Ask a Leader, you can find my podcasts on KUCI.org archives, on iTunes, or on my website, askaleader.net. But for now, don't go away. We'll be right back. I was standing in the corner by the mantelpiece, standing in the corner by a bucket of grease. I stuck my foot in that bucket of grease, went slipping and sliding down the mantelpiece. I was hunting cigarette stubs. Matches, yesterday's beer bottles. That was Pete Seeger, everybody, on the day after his death at an age of 94. Thanks for joining us here. Welcome back to the show, Ask a Leader. My first guest today is UCI chemistry professor A.J. Shaka. Athan is the uh, the formal name. I never heard it until I looked it up this week. Athan. Athan. Okay, I was wondering what the Greeks do with that th there. As the global carb- carbon footprints deepen and expand, as climate change alters every biosystem that we can think of, as intense weather wrecks a- a havoc over uh, coastal populations as and elsewhere. I find A.J. Shaka's mind particularly insightful. He considers energy impacts on a number of fronts. So many of the costs and all the fossil fuels are discounted, if not simply dismissed. He was so fascinating with this thorium nuclear generation talk on Ask a Leader two years ago. It was just two years ago coming up in the fall. I kept tapping into his latest take on how the world burns, ladies and gentlemen. AJ's expertise and interest cover physical and biophysical chemistry, nuclear magnetic resonance, spectroscopy, or otherwise known as you in your chemical circles, NMR spectroscopy, chemistry of aging nuclear power, and we'll get to that in a big way, and radiochemistry. He completed his undergraduate degree at Harvey Mudd College and his PhD at Oxford University. From Rhodes Scholar to Emmy Award winner for Best Instructional Series, which I still, I want to catch that one in a chemistry distance learning piece, A.J. Shaka joins me today in Studio A. Welcome back to the show, A.J. Thank you very much for having me. Boy, it's so good to have you, and uh, what you're fitting us in with all those classes you're teaching this winter quarter, all five of them, it's a real joy, and it's an honor and a pleasure, believe me, to have you here. So out there, we mainly have as energy options, and this is mainly, and there's so many of them, we have coal, we have hydropower, nuclear power, natural gas, solar. Um, We shall examine with your expertise the impacts uh, because you're not an economist, so cost is a little bit of a, a sort of a, a little bit of a zone to go into. It's a little bit beyond. Um, and actually, cost is hard for anybody, any one discipline to cover because the costs are so so infinite and uh, and complex to when we look at interactive aspects, too. So we're, we're going to look at the impacts as, with your chemistry uh, heady uh, credential here, and uh, we'll arrive at what is likely, uh, what you in your mind is the most suitable option because none of them are none of them are benign and by the impacts we're going as i said we're going to talk about the cost of or the impacts of extraction the cost or impacts of storage and processing and the cost of discharging uh, any of those uh, effluents so every aspect of them are on the table from natural resources to human public health consequences so in the southland AJ, you know, we, we many people were glad to see the San Onofre plant was going to go offline uh, one facility after the next, but not you. No, uh, uh, in fact, I was really disappointed by that. Um, uh, most people are afraid of radioactivity, and the reason they're afraid of radioactivity is that it's played up in the media as a terrible danger, And also, the only experience uh, with it, the first experience, was with the atom bomb. 
And nobody thinks an atom bomb is good for your health. It's an instantaneous, very high dose of radiation, and it has very bad health effects. But that's quite different compared to uh, the continuous radioactivity of, of some spent fuel, which is a very low level and which is certainly not a bomb and which can certainly never explode like a bomb. Most people, for example, don't know that the ocean itself is highly radioactive. Um, a measure of radioactivity is called the Curie. The Curie is the number of disintegrations in one gram of radium per second. Uh, and a Curie is a lot of disintegrations. It's uh, 3.7 times 10 to the 10, or 37 billion. But the ocean has 1.1 billion, with a B, Curies of uranium in it naturally. It has 380 billion curies of potassium-40, which is a naturally occurring radioactive isotope. And so... Only in the ocean? Well, so on and so forth. Uh, there's even more radioactivity in the ground. Uh, that's, of course, what's keeping the center of the Earth molten, and all geothermal power actually comes from radioactivity. Otherwise, the center of the Earth would have cooled off a long time ago. Now compare the 1.1 billion curies of uranium in the ocean with the amount, the tiny amount of radioactive tritium that leaked in the steam generator at San Onofre. That was 0.0000000001, 10 to the minus 12 curie. And it didn't go anywhere. It leaked out in the plant. It didn't go anywhere. And, and to be afraid of that is absolutely ridiculous compared to the other risks that we face uh, every single day. Now, as a result of closing San Onofre down, what has happened is although we're, we keep hearing that California is the green leader, we are not the green leader. We put up 10% more CO2 last year than before. And the reason why we did is because we shut down the giant we shut down San Onofre, which was providing a ton of carbon-free power, and we had to get the power from elsewhere. And, and we'll, go, we'll open up those options, but let's go back to our, these um, curies that you're talking about. Do they all have different half-lives? No, the curie is just how many disintegrations are taking place per second. But the radioactive elements have different half-lives. Things with a short half-life disintegrate quickly, so they give you a large number of curies for a short amount of time. Things with a very long half-life decay slowly, so they give you a smaller number of curies, but for a much longer time. How about the tritium the, um, byproduct from the discharges at the San Onofre plant? Well, uh, since you're measuring the number of disintegrations, it doesn't matter what the half-life is. You're, the absolute number of disintegrations is tiny. Okay. But um, tritium only hangs around for 12 years. Okay. That's its half-life. So, so it's, it's really, it, it's not a concern. In other words, supposing um, you did something that most people would consider to be absolutely unthinkable, it would make their skin crawl. Suppose you just took all the waste and you just chucked it in the ocean without any container, without trying to put it underground in the bottom of the ocean, without anything, just spraying it around like a fertilizer spreader on your lawn. From the plant. Okay. From from all the plants. Okay. From everything. Oh, so, and then what happened? What were you? You wouldn't notice any difference. Wow. It'd be like adding a couple of drops of water to the ocean and saying, "Gee, I wonder if the ocean is," but because the natural amount in the ocean is so huge, ten to the eighteen uh, cubic meters, and the natural amount is already so high because uranium is quite soluble. Now, furthermore. What is our dose of radioactivity okay. from the ocean? Zero. Even if you go swimming in the ocean, it's zero. You get your dose from radon daughters that come uh, uh, up out of the ground. Around your house. Around, around the your, school, around your, your workplace. Around your house, you get some dose from medical procedures. You get some dose from internal potassium-40 from eating those fruits and vegetables, and so on and so forth. The reason why you don't get any dose of radioactivity from the ocean is there's usually at least 25 feet of water between you 
and any source of radioactivity. And 25 feet of water when it comes to radioactivity is pretty much as good as infinity. In other words, it just stops everything. And so uh, obviously the fish are swimming around in the ocean. They're fine. Everything else is fine. They don't tend to concentrate the uranium. It doesn't go anywhere. doesn't contaminate anything. So uh, it's very frustrating from a radiochemistry standpoint to see solutions for uh, sequestering the, this waste that are way overkill. And this is pretty much common for the whole nuclear industry. The, the EPA uh, does an estimate of what the uh, a human life is worth. And it's basically $100,000 a year for 70 years. That's a rough estimate averaged over everybody. And then what you can ask is, what's the cost of a regulation in terms of adding a human life year? If you look at something like safety belts, putting a safety belt in a car, it's costing you $67 to add a year of human life expectancy. So you're, you're getting uh, $67 is buying you $100,000. But if you look at some of the regulations that are put on places like San Onofre, you're paying $10 million in regulatory burden for one extra year of human life. If you had that standard for everything else, for the construction of a school, for making your car completely crash-proof, better than a Formula One vehicle, for food being absolutely safe, surgically sterile, and so forth, to get the risk of everything else that might happen to you down to that level, you'd find you'd be broke. You wouldn't have enough money on Earth to pay for all that. And that's why we don't do it. And we shouldn't pick out this one industry and treat it completely differently than the others when, in fact, it's no more dangerous than anything else. And it, statistically, it's far less dangerous in terms of every aspect. I'm just wondering if part of this regulatory reaction is because of uh, a need for public uh, policy uh, makers to... Uh, try to institutionalize some kind of accountability where uh, because we're, we're going to talk about accountability and the costs in other energy options in just a bit but I'm wondering if if that's perhaps I know it's not a this is not a chemistry perspective but it's as you bring up the regulatory reaction if that might be what's part of that there um, there's no advantage to loosening regulations um, if, supposing I have a job as a regulator, if I want to keep my job, I don't loosen regulations. Because if I do that, I might be out of there. They say, well, this person's not conservative enough. We need to, we need to get somebody in there who really is conservative and going to be a proper regulator. Uh, that's one aspect. Just well, that's a political Pe thing, but but there's a sort of an institutional accountability, and I'm wondering if that's why this ramp, ramped up, uh, skewed sort of um, extra burden on regula nuclear regulatory uh, uh, provisions. But I, uh, I think there are a lot of reasons why. There's fear of weapons. There's fear of radioactivity, and um, you know all all sorts of things. So there are some reasons why historically one would be concerned. On the other hand, many of the many of the countries on Earth that could make weapons haven't chosen to do so. And we certainly aren't going to forget the technology to make weapons. So the main the main issue with weapons is whether you want to make them. The Canadians probably could have made a weapon. They chose not to. And and other countries have done the same thing. And uh, but the, the issue with CO2 is, is more, much more pressing because that, that will be a global issue and capitalism is, is fairly blind to those long-term creeping Correct. Um, issues like that. Uh, it's a short-term, uh, can I make money now? Not Present uh, value is exactly. highly worded. So for those of you who've just joined us, we're talking today to UCI chemistry professor A.J. Shaka. We're looking at our energy options, and uh, time is swiftly rushing by. We haven't said one word about coal, and so we need to put coal up there. We're, our eyes have been on 
Charleston, West Virginia, and we're watching, we're not watching anything about coal uh, being discharged into the, the public water supply. We're watching what's going into processing coal. So that's a whole new input of, uh, and a whole other cost and a casualty onto public health. So um, I, I hazard to mention which uh, there's the uh, the MSDS, the chemical uh, methyl chlorhexanomethanol, uh, the compound as well as the, that was the crude MCHM. And then there was the new chemical we heard about last week, uh, a mixture of glycol ether. So that all of that is now adding to the cost of coal. And so we're, we're going to look at coal versus nuclear power in terms of the cost on human health, uh, where we're seeing in absolute numbers, the deaths that result from a discharge, a spill, an event, an explosion. That's yeah, an event. I, I, I don't even think you need to look at uh, the occasional accident where the coal fly ash that they're storing um, gets into the water or uh, that these processing chemicals, these uh, chlorinated hydrocarbons and other things that they tend to use happen to get into the water. You just need to look at the air in China to see the impact of coal and the terrible impact on people's health. They're repeating every mistake that they, they made in, in England when, when they went over to coal. But the reason why people go over to coal is that if you go to burn, back to burning trees, you run out of trees. They don't have enough oomph. That's why people went to coal in the first place. We're going to run out of coal. The, the only question is when. And the problem is even before we burn up all that coal, we're going to destroy, autoclave the planet by putting up so much CO2 that we make uh, every, everything miserable first. So that's not really a, a viable solution. Well, I also want to mention that in even the extraction of coal, we're, there really are an... an in new, uh, uh, I don't know what a factor of how many more deaths from the extraction of coal, whether oh, it's, yeah, yeah, uh, I mean, all over the world. So conversus, uh, and, you, and you've compared it, and I, uh, I'm, I'm surprised. There's a number of people that qu hasten to remind me of the difference in casualties due to coal extraction versus a nuclear power failure. Yes, uh, of, of course. In fact, there are even more deaths uh, from putting up wind turbines than there are from nuclear. Now, come on, that, really? Uh, yes. How many? Uh, people fall off. Things happen. You're, you're up there and you're constructing things. Whenever you're constructing anything, things may happen. And although California seems to think that solar and wind is going to save the day, in fact, that has not proven to be so. Uh, the amount of raw materials you need to construct a wind farm, for example, is much, much, much higher than a nuclear plant. The amount of land usage is much higher. Nuclear plants don't kill condors. They don't kill golden eagles. They don't kill a lot of other birds that wind turbines kill. And But there's more marine life that, uh, impact um, with You discharges. can make nuclear plants air-cooled. You can put them out in the desert out there by the bright source solar plant and uh, just blow them away. Basically, you've got power 24-7. It's quiet. It's underground. You don't see it. You don't hear it. It has a minimal environmental footprint. Uh, and, and it's ideal in a lot, of, uh, a lot of ways. The thing that makes it seem not ideal in people's heads is, what about the waste? And what makes the waste seem not ideal is what about the radioactivity and my risk of getting cancer? And I say that that is completely overblown. That in fact, the theory that is used to predict how many additional cancer deaths will be seen at Fukushima is completely wrong. It's called the linear no threshold theory. It's the most conservative theory that you could possibly have. What it says is that any amount of radiation is increasing your risk for an adverse health effect. In fact, radiation was much, much higher in the past because, because all the fast decaying radioactive elements that were here when the Earth was born are gone. 
That's the reason why we have DNA repair enzymes, because everything on life grew up in a gravitational field and with a ton of radioactivity as natural background radioactivity, not an instantaneous high dose like an atom bomb, but just the drib-drab of various highly excited nuclei decaying. And um, so you could argue that, that we're actually deficient in radioactivity like we're deficient in exercise because it has decayed away like our uh, manual labor has. And in, in fact, it would be good to get a little bit more. And that as Ser surprising no, AJ, as seriously. As, listen, it's true. As surprising as that seems, low doses of radiation improve health. They improve your immune system. And there are controlled experiments that have been done. And there were also Where? some uh, on mice. On, and, uh, on mice in, this, in Europe, U.S.? No, in the Europe. U.S. Okay. And there were also some uh, accidents that happened where radioactivity was incorporated into a building by mistake. And in fact, the predictions of the linear no-threshold theory were not seen. There were no increases in cancer. And in fact, there were decreases in cancer. So you have to be extremely careful when you um, hear something on the news that says, well, based on this small leak, we predict one or two or five or ten more cancers that wouldn't have happened. First of all, how many would have happened? If it's 25,000, that's clearly insignificant. And the second thing is, if that's based on the linear no-threshold theory, it's probably completely wrong. In other words, it, you, can't, you can't rely on that theory. That theory is like saying this. I gave somebody one million units of vitamin D. Okay. And they died. Therefore, all vitamin D is bad for your health. Any amount increases your risk of death. That's what linear no threshold means. Linear means it goes up like a line. No threshold means there's no safe limit. But if you're vitamin D deficient, you have a very bad health outcome because your body needs vitamin D. It needs some stimulation there from the sun and so forth, and that's well known to be anti-tumor. So we can't go by uh, uh, an atom bomb and then say, well, that's bad, and so we'll scale it back from there, and we'll try to estimate the risk from there because an atom bomb has nothing to do with what we have at hand, which is always a low-level, drip-drab radioactivity going off slowly over time, very, very much um, uh, away from. Nobody is saying, well, you should eat nuclear waste. Look, there's lots of things you shouldn't eat, right? We just right. don't eat them. Right. We don't stop by every well, day. Well, I did want to say that uh, when folks, when you're listening to AJ, uh, this I I know AJ somewhat uh, personally, and I know that uh, AJ takes his own personal hygiene very seriously. He's really fit, and you know, he really takes good care of himself. So it's not like a, a wacko who's who's uh, blowing fat cigars and taking meth every between classes and that kind of thing. He's really a, a well-maintained guy. So it, uh, just to give him that credential of, of good uh, personal health so that um, we can understand the perspective from which he's been speaking. Yes, I, I think you have to go even, look, you have to go by the evidence, even if it's surprising. We the do. Evidence That's why can, you're on the show. The evidence can sometimes be very surprising. When I was a kid, they said you got ulcers from stress. And if you worried about the ulcers, get you're going to get them worse. So they had a catch-22 in there playing psychological games, torturing people. And then a scientist came along and said, you know something? I think it's a bacteriological infection. I think that the ulcers are, are the result of bacteria. And he was roundly drummed out. Uh, no, people said that can't be right. It's the hot sauce, it's the martinis, it's the stress. And in fact, he was right. They discovered H. pylori, and nobody has ever tested radiation for its good health effects. The only studies that have been done are, how bad is it for you? It's as if, uh, it's as if we were looking for good health effects of cigarettes or something, 
and we never found any. And and right, and we don't well, find the bad effects of cigarettes because we aren't looking for it. And the, the the opposite is true as well. If we're looking for good effects from radiation, we do a certain kind of study in a certain kind of way, and we if we're only looking for bad effects, then we don't find bad effects. We don't publish it. And uh, NIH isn't exactly expanding funding for well, uh, no, acceptable, it's, so-called it's, acceptable enterprises. So this this again, is a real hard sell. Again, if the the problem is that if something goes wrong and people get cancer anyhow, but you've been irradiating them to try to prevent them from getting cancer, um, it will be blamed on the radiation. So we don't have absolute numbers, but I, I guess what we can do is uh, encourage people to investigate the coverage on the coal energy option and look carefully and intellectually honestly at the, the human toll, the casualties as a result of all the, the, the processing all along the way. And I hasten to mention, when we talk about the particulates that the Chinese are exposed to in their coal consumption, they're all drifting over to us too. So we're all in this together. So it's a, it's a consideration that every continent must have uh, as we're making these kinds of choices. And we're watching, I want to just wrap this up, we, we're past the time here, that we're watching the European Union also, once Germany said they're going offline with all of their nuclear power plants, they're replacing them with brand new coal plants. And that is changing the whole discussion in the European Union, promulgating new carbon footprint regulations at this point. So it's a, it's a, it's a debate that's happening right now. And I'm, I don't know if that, what takeaway message you want besides our improving everybody's literacy about these energy options. Well, well the latest thing in Germany apparently is that um, the uh, utilities sued and said we didn't do anything wrong. And just because they have an accident in Japan and we've followed all the regulations and we've relicensed for 30 more years, you can't just summarily shut us down because you're afraid of something else. And, in fact, they've won. So it may be that those plants will be coming back on. But, meanwhile, the Germans have had the gall to call coal a bridging technology to a renewable future. The renewable future is far off in the future. There is no way to store enough power to supply an area like California if you have a couple of windless, uh, uh, overcast days. It, it just does not exist. It's not on the drawing board. And the people who uh, are planning these plants are dreaming because they have no way to store the energy. Oh, we'll take water and pump it uphill. What water? Oh, that's water declining. is kind of low at the current time. And we'll dropping. do this. We'll do that. It, even when you clear all the land out there in the desert and you bulldoze it all, uh, now they're finding that increases the risk for valley fever because now you have all this dust blowing Resuspended, around. Resuspended, right. Yeah. And so there are health impacts to all these endeavors, and a lot of them get swept under the rug. You have a natural gas explosion in San Bruno that levels an entire neighborhood. Um, and people Transport. still use natural gas. They don't say, well, uh, natural gas is just too darn dangerous to use. We've got to just stop using all natural gas across the country. Had that been a nuclear plant that did that, that might have been the reaction. And that's what's ridiculous. Well, I appreciate your bringing all this. I know you could give us another hour and a half. And uh, I hope that what this... Uh, particular appearance with A.J. Shaka today does is give us pause uh, for assessing the formulas and and it's a, it's a, it takes a heady chemistry background to appreciate all these Curie's measurements and that kind of a thing but uh, I hope that everybody uh, opens their minds up and takes the, A.J.'s expansive thinking uh, to heart and uh, to head <laughs> and uh, looks it up and I, I don't know if there's any if you want to plug any kind of a is there a form coming up that any of the general public can take advantage of uh, in nearby to, to get more information? Does uh, uh, there, there's nothing specific uh, happening in the near future. Is there a website at least somebody could refer to for uh, uh, upcoming prospects? 
Um, not at the current time. I mean, you have to realize that we have security concerns and other concerns, and so uh, things to do with our reactor are not physically connected to the World Wide Web. Okay. All right. Well, I wasn't thinking about that, but that's that's a facility. I'm meaning in terms of a forum for people to get additional uh, insight that like what you've been giving us today. I think you'll have to wait until they have a, a, a real energy forum and, and or a disaster. All, all the players uh, in the same room arguing and talking about what all right. the pros and cons of each option are. Well, any other, if there's some other sorts of resources, we'll be sure to incorporate those into the podcast summary so people can go to those. So A.J. Shaka, UCI chemistry professor here looking straight on, dead on at our energy options. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me, Claudia. It's good to have you. Thanks for all the time. We are going to be back in just a bit with Professor Wang Fang, sociology professor at UCI, and he'll talk about the one child policy as it's changing in China. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you for staying with me, everybody. That was Omar Torres's A Beautiful Ride on his album, A Night of Serious Drinking. I've got to thank his mom for giving me that lovely uh, CD. She's a, an artist in Seattle. So we are back with Ask a Leader, and it is my complete pleasure. We have him in town. He's back from three years in Beijing, mostly, but he, he's, a, he's asked to speak all around the world, so uh, it's not exclusively in Beijing. Wang Fang, Professor Wang Fang from the School of Social Sciences, he's a sociologist, he's a demographer, here to talk today about the China one-child rule as it continues to be reshaped. He is back, as I say, from this appointment, and he was there a uh, Brookings Institution senior fellow and director at the Let's see, Tsinghua Center for Public Policy in Beijing. That is one of the elite universities. And many of the heads of state of China went there in engineering and I'm trying to think of and the law legal um, degrees there. He was there at the foreign policy program. He was previously chair of sociology department at UCI Irvine, where he's been since 1996. He completed his PhD at the University of Michigan. He is one of the foremost scholars of contemporary society with much of his recent research focusing on the massive we can say that when we're talking about 2 billion people in a society, massive demographic and social transformations that have accompanied China's rapid economic development. His work has touched on some of the most challenging and important issue China now faces, particularly the social, economic, and political ramifications of the country's declining fertility rates in conjunction with its three decades long one child policy. You may have heard him on National Public Radio, read his pieces in the New York Times, among other media outlets. He joins me as well in Studio A. Welcome to Ask a Leader Wang Fang. The world population, it now exceeds uh, 7 billion according to the UN, and with nearly 2 billion, I think it's two, I think there are some others that uh, estimate a lot, but roughly 2 billion living in China. The birth rates around the world are a different matter, and they, uh, they all have social consequences that are apparent only to demographers like yourself and some policymakers. So China is staring down some nagging social problems as its rapidly aging population threatens to impede its economic growth. Wang Fang, you have been advocating for a fundamental change for quite a while uh, of the China one-child policy before reaching an irreversible, reversible downward sp uh, spiral. Tell us, um, what, what have you been saying to policymakers? What's been getting their attention? Well, the first thing is, um, the demographics in China have fundamentally changed in the last uh, 30, actually 40 years. Uh, this process began before uh, the one-child policy was launched in 1980. But in the last 30-plus years since the policy was announced, um, China has really entered into a totally new demographic uh, territory. Um, a number 
I mean, a couple of numbers. For more than twenty years now, uh, the average number of children born to Chinese couples、uh, has been below two. It actually is closer to one point five. What that means is that if you take out the、uh, effect of other factors such as age structure, in one generation the population would be twenty five percent smaller. So that is the fertility level China has been looking at right now. And、uh, China now has、uh, close to fifteen percent, fourteen percent of its population aged sixty and over, in about twenty years, and that share is going to go to more than a quarter of the total population. So we're really looking at a rapidly aging population. And there's that distortion. Then there's the distortion of the upcoming that all the. Uh, the family, the the child cohort that be,、uh, were born from 1974 on, how that、um, that distortion uh, also um, affects the、uh, the dynamics, the relationships within those households, and with well within the generation itself, and and what will the consequence of so many males? I don't know what the percentage of males to females is now. What does that mean in、uh, in families?、Uh, pr- uh, Propagating offspring to support the Chinese society in the subsequent generations following 1974. Well, the、uh, one-child policy was launched、uh, formally in 1980 as a emergency measure, and、uh, many negative consequences were anticipated at that time.、Uh, chiefly.、Uh, By requiring couples or families having only one child, that's a really non-Chinese thing. I mean, the Chinese families, for、uh, throughout its history, relied on the family for、uh, labor, for all the support, and for their spiritual、um, uh, wishes. But、uh, with the policy that basically requiring couples to have only one child, it generated a tremendous number of problems. Now,、um, China now has over 150 million households with only one child. Now, that is one in three for、uh, all Chinese households, and that number is larger、uh, than the total number of households in the United States. So, China has more. One-child households than the total number of households in the United States. Now、uh, we're looking at、um, families now uh, with uh, only one child uh, and the, well two children when they get married with、uh, four parents and eight grandparents. So the the burden on、uh, the elderly、uh, on children for supporting the elderly, not just economic issues, but just taking care. Uh, sending them to the hospitals,、uh, managing their finances,、uh, have already started to impose a、uh, tremendous pressure on、uh, this generation. Now,、uh, one one of the consequences that the one-child policy、uh, did not anticipate thirty、uh, some years ago uh, was uh, how sex ratio at birth、uh, started to escalate since the beginning of the nineteen eighties. Now, in the normal population, we're looking at anywhere between 106 to 108 boys per 100 girls born. Now, in China, that number has been over 120 to 100 in the last、uh, more than 10 years now, and so、uh, estimates vary.、Uh, some say this could be as few as 20 million. As many as forty million men in China、uh, are outcomes of this abnormal sex ratio at birth. So we are having, you know, roughly thirty million, if we take a number in the middle, of、um, excess males、uh, in the society.、Um, so a, uh, family support, a、uh, family structure,、uh, abnormal sex ratio at birth. These are some of the.、Uh, Social consequences、um, that have、uh, come with the one-child policy, and they will stay with、uh, China for a long time. So, Wang Fang, that's fascinating. If we can imagine, wrap our minds around so many all-male household, m- male-only households from、uh, 
as you say, starting from 1980 when they were born. What adjustments are policymakers making to uh, make up this difference? There are so many different ways I'm thinking of in terms of incentives. I mean, there, there will be more children allowed in the uh, male-female households from uh, born from 1980 on. But what adjustments besides the one-child uh, one policy uh, is the government and uh, the society making? Because, uh, as you said, there, there's, no, there's no women to provide what women provide best. Uh, well, there is a, uh, a quick and short um, solution which does not do uh, the whole uh, job. And then there was the long uh, uphill uh, battle. Uh, the short one is to, uh, just like what uh, has been done now uh, as a start, is to abolish the one-child policy. Uh, studies have shown in places where uh, couples are allowed to have two children only if the first one is a girl. This is what happened in some parts of rural China under the one-child policy. Uh, sex ratio is the highest. So if couples are allowed to have two children, and some couples will be happy with just with two girls, and others would not feel that uh, if they only have get chance to have only one child, they have to try all the means to have this one child being a boy. So by relaxing the policy, as China has begun to do, uh, would have uh, this effect, short-term effect. But that's not going to um, balance the sex ratio uh, overall. Uh, we've seen uh, this in other societies, such as in South Korea in the late 1970s, uh, when sex ratio also went very high up. Uh, that's without a uh, one-child policy in South Korea. So what happens is in societies with uh, a strong tradition of some preference um, and uh, when fertility has dropped to a very low level, for instance, if couples on average only have two uh, or uh, even fewer than two children, and when some couples decide to choose uh, the sex um, of the sex of their offspring, uh, in other words, practice uh, sex selective abortion, and that could uh, push up the, uh, the sex ratio in the population overall. So what South Korea, Korea did, and I think that's going to uh, be, well, it's been closely watched by China, uh, is to both, to use both um, <coughs> positive and punitive measures. Positive measures meaning to really to uh, show examples how uh, girls uh, are as valuable as boys. And I think couples are seeing that, uh, especially in urban, more educated couples in China. And people are seeing the value in, uh, in girls. But this also requires the societal-wide transformation where uh, women are treated in every sphere um, the same as men, and the other is to really use punitive measures, uh, which is to uh, to fine and even to put into prison uh, doctors who uh, detect uh, the uh, the fetus of of the uh, of the sex of the fetus, and then to uh, perform um, well, basically uh, illegal uh, abortion based on the uh, the sex of the fetus. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guest is social scientist, demographer at UCI, now back at UCI, Wang Fang, and we're talking about the distortions of not only the one-child policy, but the preference for male offsprings. He's looking at how South Korea is offering some case studies for Chinese uh, government policymakers to um, to determine how how strategically to make these adjustments and make them rapidly. So can so since not all of us get a chance to to visit China, what ways, what kinds of campaigns might you uh, talk to us about how that message is getting across those punitive and the um, the uh, positive reinforcements? Well, to change the uh, the norms uh, in the society. Uh, uh, especially to promote uh, more gender equality, it's an uphill uh, battle. It's a long battle. Um, and this is not just uh, to 
um, talk about the value of、uh, girls, but you really have to show that women are、uh, treated equally in schools, in job market, and、um, and in the political arena as well. Uh, now, uh, China,、uh, in some ways,、uh, has uh, seen a uh, a, uh, a retrogress、uh, in its、um, uh, gender equality. I mean, really seeing the going backwards in the last twenty, thirty years.、Uh, women has been、uh, have been commodified. Uh, we we've seen、uh, you know if you go to China, look at magazine covers, look at、uh, you know、uh, some places、uh, service sex services.、Uh, these were things that were、uh, you know a bit I mean banned、uh, during the Mao years. But in the last thirty years, with the market uh, uh, oriented reforms,、uh, everything became、uh, commodified. So you see the、uh, you know in some that says very bad example for、uh, how people treat women in the society, but at the same time throughout the Chinese、um, uh, leadership ranks,、uh, the representation of women is very scant.、Um, in the last、uh, the most recent、uh, Central Committee,、uh, this is like the power club of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we are looking at no more than ten percent of、uh, of women,、um, and ten、uh, years ago, I would say there were there were only three percent. So the representation of women in、um, uh, the political、um, organizations and also in higher level、um, economic、uh, business positions,、uh, it's it's very minor. So all these send signals. To how women are not as、uh, valued as men,、uh, but、uh, things are changing. I think、uh, there are、uh, NGOs, and then the government has also、uh, began with a number of programs.、Uh, they are all making efforts to、um, to、uh, fight for gender equality from、uh, places like domestic violence, from places like、um, getting. Girls in rural China to schools. So those changes, I think, when、uh, small changes like those, when they put together over time,、uh, will generate a、uh, improved、uh, situation when women are uh, valued um, more equally compared with men. So it sounds like there is a, a really complicated、uh, array of factors in play right now that uh, are. Um, Undermining and trying to reinforce the reversal of the spiral of the fertility downturn. So,、uh, how optimistic are you, as a demographer, that these unwieldy forces are going to get some kind of correction、um, in time, so that this distortion doesn't—I、uh, I don't know—undo Chinese society? Uh, well, um, I think. Uh, ending the one-child policy、uh, is certainly the first uh, step. Uh, now, uh, demographically,、um, China is, in some ways, is it's going downhill. It's like a fast aging train going downhill, and so the the least、um, the government could do is not to continue to press、uh, its foot on the gas pedal. Right, you have a vehicle going downhill, and、uh, you should put your foot on the brakes, not on the gas pedal. Now, continuing the one-child policy, as the government has done in the last、uh, well th- three decades, especially in the last ten years, when、uh, facts were made so clear that fertility level had reached a very low level, and the one-child policy、uh, is a policy that's not.、Uh, Uh, value neutral or consequence neutral is highly negative,、um, and the government continued to、uh, implement the policy for ten more years. So that's really not doing much good for the society. So that's that's for the short run.、Uh, that's the first step to do. Now that is not going to、um, solve the problem by any means.、Uh, we've seen、uh, two things. One is. Um, the low fertility is really not driven by the、uh, 
the very restrictive policy. The most of the low, most of the uh, the forces of the low fertility really came from the changes in the society, in the economic and social pressures couples face, and also in a different uh, a value orientation the young generation has. And uh, so they, I mean, we see this worldwide in everywhere. So um, unless we change those kind of uh, parameters, uh, people are not going to have uh, more children. Uh, at the same time, we've seen in different parts of the world, um, governments have uh, all launched uh, programs to encourage people to have uh, more uh, babies uh, in Russia, in Singapore, in Japan, um, now in South Korea. Um, we don't see the policy working uh, in most cases. So uh, even if China moves relatively quickly uh, to phase out one child policy totally, right now it's only the beginning of relaxation. Uh, but even China st starts to implement incentive programs, uh, it, it is simply going to be much harder for uh, the government to uh, to induce people to have babies than what it did in the past, which is to restrict people from having children. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Professor of Social Science Wang Fang, we've really run out of time, and I've, I want to make sure if you could just tell us perhaps what kind of resources you would uh, recommend that people follow these dynamics in uh, throughout Chinese society. I know uh, lots of Brookings Institution publications that uh, that you've written and others, many of them are in Chinese, so I want to know for an English-speaking audience what resources you would like to endorse as we close this interview. Uh, well, there are uh, two uh, many to uh, mention. I think China is really very much uh, at the center of uh, the attention of the world. Uh, but the Brookings uh, China Center uh, website in English uh, is a very good place to start with, and uh, that is, that center has some of the uh, the very best uh, scholars uh, we have uh, on China. Well, speaking of very best, you are our very best man uh, in this a larger region, and to come all the way into my little radio station and and give us the heft of your demographic research that you've been doing over the decades yourself, and in the field, and you you've been you know it intimately, so you're the one to be watching this on everybody's behalf. So, Professor Wang Fang, thank you for coming to Ask a Leader today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Talk with you next week. Thank you for joining us. <laughs>